I, I'm going to um, paraphrase something from Denise, but it's quite important to the film. And, and she has been thinking a lot about ancestors and ancestral claims. And she has a text, and I don't know where it's published, but it is, it's published called Ancestral Claims, I think. Um, and in this text, and it's a big part of our film, is, is this question of um, reconsidering what ancestors are to us um, or not what they are but that they're not necessarily separate from us and this idea of history as already happened or haunting as you know as entities being kind of discrete and in the matter or, or like in the water as spirits or elves or whatever um, however you want to figure it I think where Denise and I agree with her is is that not necessarily to think of these things as separate from us and our ancestors are not separate from us, but at the same time think of matter also not as separate from us. And so in this um, organic and non-organic, living and non-living, uh, matter and dark matter, or you know, across whatever binaries that have been drawn um, is a proposal for a, a, a different set of relations um, in terms of knowledge, apprehension, being. And, um, and I think what the film proposes is that this relationship to the world or this entanglement with the world is already there. It doesn't need to be... Um, it's already there and it's hiding in plain sight. It's just a matter of adjusting our sensibility or way of relating, way of seeing, way of knowing. And I think the ghost or the ancestor or is a way to, you know, say it's there, but it's not there or it's there, but we just haven't quite fully grasped it or um, encountered it in the right way or welcomed it in, in the right way. Artist, filmmaker and writer Arjuna Neumann has been working in tandem with philosopher Denise Ferreira da Silva since 2016. The result of their collaboration is an ongoing series of films and installation that merge poetics and critical theory in a dreamlike polyptych that is disorientating and grounding in equal parts. A poignant and profoundly emotional take on the ethical, political challenges of the global present, which the duo constructs through human and non-human perspectives across different scales of existence. Their so-called elemental cinema, part documentary and part personal essay, considers often overlapping events and disasters of the past, present and future history of the planet, from slavery and police brutality to ecological collapse and the biodiversity crisis. These films, which stem from the question, what would become of the human if expressed by the elements, engage with this effective blend of poetics and theory, and with their own formal and structural elements, to propose alternatives to the destructive consequences of Western constructs. Borrowing, editing, and narrative techniques from a wide range of cinematic tropes and music, they conjure up ghostly presences and evoke timelessness. We sat down with Arjuna Neumann to talk about planetary body horror, wind, clouds, blues, tenderness, and the not-so-evident autobiographical threads in their films. We are currently um, finishing a new film. It's called Ancestral Clouds, Ancestral Claims. We'll premiere it at Kunsthalle Vienne in October this year as an installation. At the moment, it's 50 minutes, and it follows the classical element of wind. Um, it's part of our ongoing elemental series where we make one film for each classical element and we use the element as a kind of guide, a source of inspiration, an analytic framework, um, an invitation to uh, non-traditional, to use non-traditional formats and knowledges like tarot and astrology. We're in the middle of the edit, so it's 
um, it's hard to talk about it from a, like from distance. Uh, we filmed in the Atacama Desert in Chile last year, and we looked at uh, the long history of mining in Chile, and not only the long history of mining, but how that intersects very strongly with one of the birthplaces of neoliberalism um, through Pinochet and its most current formation through uh, lithium, both current formation of mining and um, neoliberalism. Lithium, of course, being the thing that powers all of our laptops and phones and soon electric cars and cameras. so we're thinking about lithium as a kind of haunted materiality, haunted by past versions of neoliberalism, haunted by past versions of uh, resource extraction, haunted by uh, the disappeared Marxists and dissidents, um, haunted by the unmarked graves dotted all around Chile, also haunted by the flamingos whose um, habitats are being totally destroyed. Um, and we follow one of these ideas of, of um, flamingo feathers as a kind of, it's used to invoke collectivity. Um, so we're thinking about all these hauntings of lithium and how they're appearing in our devices and in our electric cars and in our laptops. And so the question that's guiding uh, this film and this research is, is, you know, what are ghosts made of? Um, and of course, we work in a material or raw material way, so it's it's finding a material basis for ghosts or metaphysical objects or the soul. This quote by um, Margaret Thatcher in the Times in 1981, she says, uh, "Economics is the method; the object is to change the soul." And this is a kind of very chilling definition of uh, neoliberalism that we're kind of working against. You know, if, if neoliberalism for the past 50 years has been trying to overdetermine our souls or our ghosts or our identity, and these are kind of sometimes interchangeable, how can we, you know, resist that or refuse that? Uh, in the previous films, we've worked a lot with uh, sound bites, inter- long interviews that we then um, reduce to sound bites or phrases or very short commentary, um, more poetic fragments that then the viewer can, you know, research more. We we often present the full interviews as part of the archive or along with the film. So that's been our method for the first three films. For this film, we did the interviews, but We've moved to a slightly more anecdotal form, is what what I'm calling it. We're not using directly the voices, but we've sort of um, extrapolated the interviews into slightly more narrative anecdotes or vignettes. And we've worked with actors to voice these encounters, these fictional, semi-fictional encounters. And for me, I really like this format. It's sort of, it's still documentary or film essay, but it's pushing into a space which is a little bit more playful, a little bit more malleable. It can be structured, you know, because it's partially fiction, um, but also a little bit more emotional or narrative. And we've always had a resistance against narrative, especially against representation. Narrative, not so much, but against linear narrative. So it's interesting for me, and I don't know if Denise has a different opinion on this, but it's interesting for me to bring a little bit more narrative, a little bit more, I mean, we're a long way from classic cinema, but a little bit more of the cinematic into the film. I think working with actors is is difficult because we've been reluctant to take on representation. Like we we tend towards more abstraction or poetry in the in the more abstract or concrete or I don't know these different uh, registers but less in a kind of novel or fictional and the reason for that is all of the problems that you encounter with representations like 
what race actor do you choose? Do you make that visible, invisible? I don't know. There's a whole set of questions and, and those questions come with assumptions and hierarchies. And for the most part, it's easier to to not enter those uh, conversations. And it's it's coded, it's, it's coded hierarchies or coded categories that are automatic that you come to it. So it's either you play with it directly or you avoid it altogether and i think we've tended to avoid it like we 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 don't show faces or bodies or humans and we try tend to of course it's a human perspective but we also try to um visit other uh non-human perspectives like in four waters we um also film from the point of view of the water cycle and one of the early conceptual premises was um asking what is what is carried on the wind it's a similar question to what a ghost made of. And of course, there's the material things that are carried on the wind, dust, plastic, pollution, pollen, um, sand. And we follow this material trajectory. Like, for example, Sahara sand blows across uh, the Atlantic and fertilizes the Amazon. And a lot of pollution blows across from Asia and, and lands in the U.S., so we follow these material trajectories, but something else that gets carried on the wind is knowledge and poetry and fragments and phrases and and conversations and encounters. Um, and it's not carried in a linear way and it's not really carried in a representational narrative way, um, but it does create uh, sociality or it does create um, knowledge sharing. And so the film uses this in part uses the way fragments of of communication phrases sentences poetry words are carried on the wind as a form as a narrative form or a cinematic form there's a film an iranian film called lover's wind it's not quite the same but this is shot from the perspective of the lover's wind uh, and the wind in that is a speaking speaking entity um we're not personifying the wind as much as thinking about it as a medium uh like cinema is a medium Horror as a genre or ghost stories, um, these genres in film and writing are interesting or gothic. They're quite interesting um, to us. Uh, and I think I've said this elsewhere, but one of the ways I sometimes think about the films is a kind of um, planetary body horror um, to think of, you know, these types of films where the human body gets totally, dis like in Cronenberg, gets totally distorted. And what happens if we think of the planet in in terms of uh, body horror or in terms of the horror uh, that we can have when things are, are grossly distorted and how that's a kind of difference to a kind of pessimism or... A, a different kind of approach. I mean, thinking about climate change and, and what the emotion, there's a lot been written about what the, uh, not necessarily right, but what what emotions or affects um, should we face climate catastrophe? I think like grief is a very common one. I think Timothy Morton talks about melancholy. Um, there, are, there are others. Um, and I think this idea of horror or the the emotional effect you have in in some of these body horror films is like a mix of desire and repulsion and fear. I don't know. It's a complex set of emotions um, because there's always like an erotics in body horror as much as there is um, repulsion. And I think like, you know, maybe applying that um, or think thinking what that 
emotional relation to climate change might be helpful or might be, you know, in addition to grief and melancholy. Um, so I wanted to say that when, when, when you were talking, Rock, a bit about these kind of disembodied voices and these different landscapes and to think about, you know, not to say that the planet is a human body or to, to um, personify the planet, but to, uh, you know, we have emotions not just for other humans, but also for our environment and um, our way of relating to the environment. I think the last two films, um, especially the last film, especially Soot Breath, the structure of the film has, there's um, certain editing and musical structures that not directly, but are inspired by um, horror, horror formats. And of course the film is also about mining um, and migration and a lot of these global transformations. Um, but at a kind of effective level, there is uh, an invitation to um, experience what you're viewing, as well as the, in hearing the disembodied voices and this kind of destroyed landscapes. There's an invitation to approach it as one would a horror film. Um, it starts uh, like in a swamp and it's very jumpy. And the reference, the whole film refers to the blues a lot. And I think the blues is also uh, horror in a, I'm not the first person to call blues horror. I think it's like uh, often written about as a type of somewhere between social realism and horror. And as a, or a space that I've called the ecological unconscious um, of black music. And what I mean by that is the blues being somewhat forgotten or aspects of the blues being very present in all musical form or most musical forms um, but also a lot of its kind of focus and content being forgotten and um, the blues's relationship to the agricultural and to the land um, is something that you don't hear so much in uh, modern in modern black music in techno and um, in hip-hop, both of those, techno is kind of more Afrofuturist, tends to be, and hip-hop is more kind of inner-city um, focus. And there's various reasons why the agricultural or the ecological has sort of um, been neglected. And this is not to say categorically there's, like, um, in the show here and uh, elsewhere... I sort of talk about underground resistance who have an EP called Acid Rain EP and traditionally underground resistance this Detroit techno group were part of Afrofuturist and they have a lot of um, off-planet songs and thinking but they also have a, a, a I think three EPs Acid Rain 1, 2 and 3 and this these EPs are these songs are focused on the acid rain that's being caused over Detroit um, by the automobile manufacturing industry. So I think there are plenty of examples, but they're just not the ones that have been foregrounded in um, music writing. And I think, and you go look at the blues and there's a Charlie Patton song called High Water Everywhere. And this talks about a flood of the Mississippi and how the black workers were left to drown on the banks and the rhythm and sound of the song is this churning sound and it makes you feel like the water is slowly rising. Yeah, I'm 
They knew they were going to die, and the song recreates that feeling of drowning. And I think um, in terms of a kind of planetary body horror or the feelings associated with a kind of... It was a natural disaster, but the human approach or the, the local approach to that disaster was to sacrifice people, black workers, for me, this is a strong reference or source of inspiration for thinking and feeling through um, planetary body horror or the kind of set of emotions that that orbit both a natural disaster, whether that natural disaster is in part man-made or the human response to it, just the whole kind of nexus of, um, of what... Uh, dramatic changes in our environment look like. And I think that I think what's also important about the blues is it's it's quite close to the slavery period and it um references a lot of the horrors that are in slavery but then also um intersects with the blues musicians agricultural lifestyle, working on plantations. So you really get a kind of collision of um race and ecology or racism and climate change in in the blues and i don't think this has really been expanded enough um and i think it's super important right now because these are the like these are the pressing issues you know just fighting racism and fighting climate change and i think going all the way back to the blues is uh as a as a really important place to look the blues also um, drew heavy inspiration from the Choctaw uh, music and culture, which is the indigenous uh, people from around the Yazoo Delta in Mississippi. And I think um, this is another way that uh, the music accesses um, ecological themes and um, ecological ideas. But it's a whole, there's a lot there to um, go into. 
So in Four Waters, we um, filmed a lot about uh, Marshall Islands and the nuclear tests that were done there. And we interviewed one of the sole survivors of the nuclear test, Courneuge. And it's like, it's it's real, but it's the most horrific. Um, she describes white radiating dust falling on her hair and in the glass and in the water and the water fizzing and her hair falling out and then people vomiting on, I don't know, it's, the mo it's like, is the most... Um, horrific and yeah disturbing uh interview for me that that we we did and i think this idea of climate change or like the destructive power of the human and experiencing it through eyewitness or survivors i think brought in or introduced this you know question of what what's what's the emotional response or what, how do you how do you sit with and how do you respond to these, you know, vast, vast destruction? And of course, the nuclear bombs is very different to slow death. You know, it's a very, it's a very high speed annihilation, but they're, they're part of the same the Anthropocene. Some people argue for the golden spike of the Anthropocene being the nuclear test. I think they're not unrelated. And there's a, um, a writer called Gunther Anders who we refer to quite a bit and he was very vocal after the second world war in understanding what the emotional response to the nuclear detonations in hiroshima and nagasaki were and he he says that we were not afraid enough or in the wake of those tests the humans have failed in finding the right emotional response to these tests. And had they found the right emotional responses, then the nuclear test would be completely bad. I don't know, denuclearization would have happened a long time ago. And I mean, he goes into more detail, but I think this was one of those prompts is to think about the, yeah, this question of what, what emotional or effective disposition or sensibility is um, not necessarily the right one, I don't think there's one, but like which ones lead to less violent outcomes. I think what Gunther Anders says about the nuclear detonation is that it's so abstract, like 80,000 dying in one split second, um, that the human capacity to have an emotional response to that is like, I can't imagine more than a thousand people or a hundred people, let alone 80,000. And that time frame is beyond, it's faster than a blink. So it's, they're both like outside of human perceptive and imaginative capacities. But at the same time, he says that's not a fixed, um, that's not a fixed thing. And I think a lot of what Denise and I try to do is expand or invite um, embodied and intellectual response to different scales of events from a very small liquid crystal to something cosmic and I think I don't know what the right scale of comprehension or empathy or you know I think that can get complicated, but at least recognizing that is plastic and and um, transformable, transformative. I don't know what the right word is, but it's that it's malleable and permeable. Um, and I think a lot of our work, you know, plays with that, with the um, capacities and limits limits that we've inherited from European traditions of knowledge and ontology um, and I don't think I can put it in words and I think it, it's a strange task to try and put it in words and I think that's a big part of the problem and a big part of a European tradition which makes certain things impossible to understand is that uh, you know a, a 
uh, need to represent it. But I think Soot Breath does try as a film and as a kind of audiovisual um, experience, try to cultivate or invite in the viewer um, a set of emotional responses that correspond and hopefully correspond positively or in a way that leads to flourishing um, with some of the crimes and disasters that that we see. And I mean, just to give an example, there's uh, Nina Simone's song, Wild is the Wind, that is a really beautiful song. And I think it carries an emotion that I could never describe. I don't know, I mean, try and describe any any great song. I think it carries an emotion that, I mean, we sort of talk a bit about it as tenderness and tenderness being both an emotional state, but also a physical state and not just a human state, but like grass can be tender. Um, as an example of a certain disposition that might be um, a sensibility with which to approach some of this, you know, terrifying things. But I think like, if you listen to Wild as the Wind, Nina Simone, especially the live version, if you listen to it quite often, for me at least, there's a emotion there or a set of emotions that I find maybe sufficient to face climate change. I don't know, it's very hard in language. It's like, I don't want to use optimistic language or or also despairing language. I think those are the like the two res- the two responses or some of the responses to totally avoid and it's sort of finding something which holds enough complexity. Yeah, maybe my answer would be like listening to this um, Wild is the Wind song, which both brings me to tears and joy and tenderness and so many other emotions through the duration of the song. And we place it like, I think it's right in the middle or near the middle of the film. It's kind of a, um, a pivot or it's an important moment in the film. In poetry in general, the elements are very present. Um, wind and heat and weather. and I don't know, like, this kind of... That's one thing. I think um, for Denise being interested in tarot and Reiki and astrology, the elements also play into that. And um, in my Southeast Asian background, um, the elements are also, you know... Uh, key to the, that that um, philosophical and even everyday understanding. I mean, uh, like in Singapore, the buildings are always built with a sense of the uh, the, the public buildings are always built with a sense of um, how the elements are hitting the building. So I think, like, I guess what I try to say is it's quite intuitive the way we came to it and intuitively aligned um i think in my own background even from when i was studying i studied with alan sakula and he followed shipping containers and i think okay shipping container and elements are very different but they they have this geopolitical and planetary reach and i think in a lot of the work that i've done both with and without denise it's it's trying to think and feel planetary transformations at across many different scales and i think that's really important because just sitting here at this table everything i mean the tascam recorder probably made in japan the cookies the wheat was probably harvested i don't know i mean this table already reaches six out of seven continents probably so i think not to try to uh, make work and make analysis and imagine on the same scale as this table of what's on this table um is i don't know i think there's a need there's an urgent need for it and i think too often we don't do that 
or artists don't do that and writers don't do that. And I understand why. I mean, it's difficult enough to like deal with local, regional, European politics. And so it's not it's not for everyone. I think for me, because of my own um, biography and my family coming from so many different places, so many different diasporic lineages, it feels more comfortable actually speaking and and working on many different places and many different scales at the same time. I think that's sort of, it feels more natural or more intuitive, at least geographically speaking, but that of course, like your sense of home crosses into, you know, your sense of home is also your relationships and your language and your food and your philosophy. And and, and so if, if my sense of home is not located in uh, Devon, England, where I grew up, for example, but have no other emotional ties to, then the viewpoint, the point of view with which I sort of think about things is also informed um, by having a sense of home which is spread out over not six continents like this table, but uh, at least three. Both sides of my family um, are refugees, or my mom was a refugee and my dad was a child, firstborn American to... Um, refugees and i think this uh this biography of migration and displacement forced or like now my family move a lot but it's not forced migration they're privileged enough to be able to move move countries um but an experience of of migration is like much closer much like deeper in my body and experience um, than I imagine it is for other people and uh, this really does inform as I was saying this is um, informs the work it's, but it's quite it's um, it's interesting because this identity this family identity as being um, refugees or, or descendants of refugees it only at least for me became apparent in around 2015, during that crisis of, of forced displacement with Germany taking a million refugee, I don't know, that, that moment in the Mediterranean, I mean, it's still happening now, but it was much more present in the media and in the daily experience. And that only became acknowledged by my family around then. And up until 2015, 2016, I knew that the different sides of my family in their language fled like this was the the narrative and i never really pieced that together of course i know my dad's jewish ref like parents fled from the holocaust but then this kind of taking on this identity of being refugee forced migration only happened in 2015 to 16 and it sort of changed a little bit i mean it named something that i'd always known but never really like taken on as a family identity. And this was during the making of Four Waters. And I don't know if it was during or before, but it, it really informed um, the making of that film. And one of the locations that we had chosen to film, I forget what the exact order, but it's, you know, that new family identity or um, acknowledgement came about during the making of the film. And one of the locations was Lesbos and but we went and filmed on these islands that were almost entirely refugee camps and for me it was it was really I'm trying to think of the emotion it's I mean it was really heartbreaking it was really sad and we didn't we chose not to film the camps themselves but just to go to the island and and see what the island looked like and see what was happening and and take the ferry from um Izmir uh, to Lesbos and sort of just look at this uh, part of the world. And I was totally I was totally surprised to have a really, really strong emotional response. It was some like a sense of heartbreak and sadness and like I mean you can call it intergenerational trauma, but I don't I don't know if that's or a realization of um, intergenerational trauma. And I think like I don't know how present that is how explicit that is in the film but it's implicit in the film and I remember this conversation Denise didn't come film in Lesbos 
and when she watched the footage she was like why is it so sad like what what like what's and we had this conversation about a kind of this new identification or re-identification with uh, forced displacement in my family. So the end of the film, we dedicate it to both sides of my grandparents. And I think it's not, I mean, people who know me know this, this backstory, but it's not, it's not explicit in the film. I mean, the film is about migration, is about refugees, but it's not, it's not a memoir. It's not an autobiography. But it informs the the form of the film very deeply, and I think that is uh, that is consistent in all the films. There's always a deep and not explicit autobiographical component that I think is important. I wouldn't know how to make. I wouldn't know how to put the film together without that. A lot of our research is done by going to places and and talking to people and and being a body um, in these locations. And personally, I, I much prefer that kind of research and, and time in in the library. And I think for Denise, who you know has is an academic by training, spends a lot of time in libraries. And I think it was quite fun for me to invite her to come to filming locations and then um, to kind of develop ideas and have conversations in very specific locations. I think one of the earliest ones was looking for a frozen waterfall as we were thinking about time and timelessness. Um, so we went and spent a day looking for frozen waterfalls in, in Norway, uh, north of Bergen. And then when we found one, then we sort of discussed the film and discussed um, ideas. And I guess, like, in a sense, that's the archive or that's the site. Much more, I mean, yeah, the blues and Turner and there's there are references, but much more the sites of our research are, are places very specific locations. For example, recording the sound of fish off of the coast of Haiti and thinking about, you know, the the remnants of drowned slaves and, and you know, what the fish were eating and, and what that sounds like. I think, like, 
you know these days everything is an archive but i mean that is a specific like like the land or the site or space as archive or as a space which has contains a whole lot of history and a whole lot of different ideas i think for, for us that's that's our research process or like that's one of our main research processes along with that is talking to people um like we did this interview with the the director of geology in Haiti and having this conversation um with him which comes up in in for what is i think um or speaking to geobiologists in Norway i don't know the 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 people we interview tend to be related or from the place that um yeah i think like a while ago we we call it like site sensitive conversation i know it's, a, it's kind of a silly name but you know what would it mean to do philosophy or conceptualizing in uh specific landscapes either contested landscapes like haiti or um landscapes with particular uh like frozen ice falls with particular geological um formations or in the atacama i don't know i think um because our interest is the planetary i think getting out of the libraries and archives and seeing like or going to the marshall islands for example and um interviewing alson who is the last living navigator but then also being taken out on a boat um to see some of the nautical i mean he didn't show us um uh, wave piloting but i don't know th- this kind of body in space experience along with the kind of long legged histories of these places i i would say um those are the archives or those are the sites of research and it's very for me it's very embodied i think like when you film or record audio um especially when you record audio you have to like stand still and um no movement because you'll pick it up on the microphones and we do these long takes so we kind of record for 10 minutes so you have to stand still like in a location for 10 minutes and just really like you get bored for the first few minutes and then you start to tune into everything and everything that's happening around you and if i have the headphones on and i'm like listening to you know all the different sounds that are happening in this location and i think like that mode of research um yeah i mean it's it's kind of it is a, it is i don't know i'm just sort of hesitating about calling it as research cuz like everything is artistic research but that tuning in to the sensitivity of a place both it's very present but it's long history you know the recording of the fish in the present moment but the long history of that being the first piece of land that slave ships you know would have seen i think all of those past present and future um reverberations uh are best sensed by a body by my body or Denise and my body being in in those locations um and then of course reading about it and and looking at images but i think the first first mode is to to go there which is great but it's tiring because it means visiting i think in the making of four waters and this is very not climate change sensitive but i think i traveled around the world twice in the year of making that film um and it really messed with my um sleeping pattern and circadian rhythm because i think yeah your body's not so used to that much travel so we don't we don't travel as much as we did um in 2015 2016 but you know being a body in space and 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 tuning into the environment and what's being felt um i think i would say are there is the mode of research i think a lot of the editing and the choice of camera angle and sound design like i think a lot of the form is an attempt to on the one hand recreate the conversations that we're having and on the other recreate the experience of bodies in these specific spaces and these spaces which have charged histories because it's not just the nice beach in Haiti the tropical beach but it's like you know there's the residence time so that you know this idea of the the slave molecule still being in the water 
um yeah so it's it's like that history the material history is is very present and a lot of the formal decisions are an attempt to um document that set of feelings and set of conversations whether it's denise and i talking in front of a frozen waterfall or or this this kind of heartbreak feeling that i had when i went to lesbos or this sense of um tenderness that i experienced um in death valley is a lot to to try and um document that but not only document the subjective feeling but document it's kind of historical and political and social you know it's like it's not just an expression of what death valley feels like as much as what kind of death valley plus a sense of desertification of the planet um you know this this place where um embodied um embodied collection of impressions and feelings meets the the political and geopolitical i think like you know there's a conversation between denise and me and then there's a conversation between the body not my body but bodies in general and the larger social geopolitical forces that apply in these places of of you know in these very conscious um sites that tie into different um different frameworks or different global frame yeah different global frameworks the autobiographical is also a mode of structuring um you know we always like like you're saying there's a, there's a, there's a mass there's an abundance of content and research is kind of unruly so finding ways um to um distill or or to foreground um and uh the the personal is i think one of those um ways that that help us uh focus focus the research and to give an example um for soot breath which is focused on the earth element um we looked in denise and i looked in our astrological birth charts to see where which signs we have which earth signs we have and my sun is virgo and denise's moon um is virgo both earth signs and so this film in a sense is very much about you know what earth sign is and that's a sense of home um you know nominal or literal and so two of the locations that we chose were and in quotation marks because we're on radio you can't see that um home um and so we filmed in Minajares which um is where Denise's grandmother I think is from and we filmed in Indonesia which is um where my relatives lived for five generations so like how is this important um to you know what some of the more philosophical or aesthetic concerns are is 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 just it's an open question and i think it comes through or it, its role is um a place like the elements allow us to connect kind of resource extraction or the destruction of the earth with the earth placements um in our chart and i think like i did I, it's not it's not a i don't think we have a theory of the role of biographical information like i don't think it's it's something that we develop so much as as much as we just like acknowledge and accept um as a really important role in the making of these works and i i know that doesn't sound very coherent or very like it's not a very sophisticated or like over theorized statement but i think um it would be weird you know we're working across many scales from you know the 
quantic to the cosmic, it'll be weird not to have the scale of the personal and interpersonal in that register. You know, I think, um, of course, we're not trying to be comprehensive and not trying to do every scale, but I think, like, um, what that brings, what this kind of filming in our, in quotation mark, home or earth, you know, um, spaces brings is, like, uh, a, a quality... Um, I don't know. I don't know what the quality is, but it brings a, a, a quality or a um, approach which I think is really important. And I couldn't exactly tell you why or how it's really important, but I think um, it's a counterpoint to some of the more um, the vastness and um, complexity. And it's complex and vast in its own way. I think our own, everyone's autobiography or biography is. Um, complex and vast but I think it's something I want to emphasize as holding an important place in our practice and it doesn't it can get overlooked or um, can get a bit neglected um, with you know ideas which you know some people think are sexier like you know philosophical ideas or aesthetic ideas and I think it's important to yeah acknowledge you know working across scales and that the personal is one of these scales that um yeah i think is is a bit tricky because there is a sense of um not reproducing the human and the human point of view at least in its uh western or european um tradition so there's a kind of antagonism between you know, representation and narrative and, and personal stories um, and uh, not reproducing, you know, the reproducing and trying to avoid the reproduction of um, some of these violences. But at the same time, it's, it would be disingenuous to act as if we don't have, you know, as much as we have bodies and spaces, we also have biographies and, and personal histories and things. Um, yeah, one of the people we interviewed for Soot Breath um, was my mom, and she was talking about, she talks about her experience of um, having to leave Indonesia in the middle of the night, of being um, persecuted by the Indonesian government, and, and having to take a, a boat in the middle of the night. And, um, yeah, I think, I think um, we talk about refugees and migration in the abstract quite a lot or forced migration from of course talking about slavery as displacement is always going to be abstract there's no more. but also to locate it not only in the personal account but locate it in in um in the flesh of my own family um i think is really important and i think um part of our process you know there's a reparative um part of our process not just in terms of critiquing capitalism but like in terms of people and relate you know it's not it's a methodology you know our art practice isn't make just making films it's like a methodology that it's a philosophy right you apply it to different not just the public outputs or the um, museum shows but it's um an approach and i think like interviewing my mom for this film and having her talk about these things i don't know if it was reparative it was probably more annoying for her than anything but i mean it it it, it brought up um family histories that they're not that they were buried but that they also hadn't really been spoken about at the same time like i was saying before about how um this acknowledgement of of our family as being refugees you know so it's part of this kind of, um, I guess, uncovering work um, that, you know, it's not just, I think everyone's bodies and biographies 
have been affected by the legacies of colonization and racism and capitalism and i think like focusing on the very personal and intimate can open up just as much as focusing on questions of time and being and and not to neglect one for the other or replace one with the other. Mm.